0: Our text for today comes from Acts 1 through 21. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas to sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed, along with some other believers, to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all the believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago, God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent." It's ruins I will rebuild, and I will restore it. That the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write, Write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from, uh, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated.
1: All right. I gave you a long one today. Is everybody okay? Did you get all of that? You'll be tested later. Actually, you'll be tested right now. How's that sound? I actually have a little pop quiz for you this morning. Does that sound fun? Yeah, no, it does not, does it? Uh, you did not wake up this morning thinking you were going to get a test when you came to church, were you? Uh, just for the record, this is not an effective church growth strategy, testing people, uh, before they come to church. So, when you do invite your friends to church, don't tell them this is what I do, all right? Good. Uh, I promise there's no grades handed out with this little pop quiz. Uh, and uh, you won't be held accountable for what you say. What you say in this little quiz. But in just a moment, I'm going to put up on the screen some Old Testament laws found in the Bi- part of the Bible that our Jewish friends call the Torah. Um, and so, on the on the screen will be a number of prohibitions, some some laws that we find in the Old Testament, and uh, that God tells His people things that God tells His people not to do in the Old Testament. And what I want us to do today is just to answer out loud, so participation is great, um, whether this is something that Christians today are supposed to follow or not follow. Does that make sense? So, everybody tracking? So, there, So there are, these are just kind of yes or no's. Yes, Christians are supposed to follow them. They're supposed to obey these laws. Or no, Christians are not expected to obey this law or follow it. Does that make sense? All right. So, let's, thank you. Somebody's being very responsive this morning. So let's throw the first one or couple up. Uh, so the first one there, don't sleep with your neighbor's wife. Are we supposed to follow that one? Yes. Correct. You guys nailed it. Don't let your hair get too messy. Leviticus ten six. No? Okay. Uh, don't go to church within 33 days after, having, uh, after giving birth to a baby boy. Leviticus twelve fourteen. Right? No? My wife actually broke that one like three weeks ago uh number four there don't sacrifice your kids to the god Molech. thank you for getting that one i appreciate it all right next don't worship idols deuteronomy 4 all right uh don't lie good job don't get tattoos we're getting a little bit more i know i know which is it yes or no we're divided. True story, I know a pastor who literally got Leviticus 1928 tattooed on the inside (laughs) of his arm so that he could have conversations about this very thing. Uh, All right, next, don't work on the Sabbath. What do you think about that one? That one's a little confusing, right? Okay, all right, well, there you go. Now the portion of you talking in church is over, and it's my turn. (laughs) No. Now, I put these on the screen today, Uh, not just because I want us to get us thinking a little bit about why it is that Christians do observe some of the Old Testament laws and not others, because it's an important thing to think about. Maybe you've never thought about this question before. It's never really hit you, or maybe you're in this place and you have thought about it, and it's troubled you from time to time. But it turns out to be a pretty important question, I think, it's a question that I find many people ask as they begin exploring the Christian faith, or uh, for young people who grew up in the Christian faith and begin to question their faith, this is a question that often comes up. What is the deal with the Old Testament laws? People are curious about why Christians say that they believe all of the Bible, and this is, and it's true, and that it's authoritative, and yet there's this big chunk of the 613 laws in the Old Testament that we don't observe, that we don't follow. And it can be difficult for us even, right? When we're reading through the Old Testament to come across laws and rules in the Old Testament that don't seem important, then most certainly don't seem relevant to our lives. And so we have to ask the question, what purpose do these laws about not eating certain types of meat or, trim it, or not trimming your beard have to do with what it means to be a Christian, to be a follower of Jesus? And these turned out to be really, really important questions, actually, uh, that influence all kinds of things about what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a follower of Jesus in a modern context. Because it has to do with how we read our Bibles and what role religious activities or practice has in our daily spiritual lives. And when we jump into the story in Acts 15, the passage that Ashley just read, the, the church is trying to come to terms with these very same questions. And, I th- and if you think it's a little confusing for us to try to figure it out in our day, just put yourself in their shoes. Just imagine how intense and contentious this question was for the very first generation of Jesus followers. Because, as we've been saying through this series uh, in, in Acts this summer, the first followers of Jesus were Jewish. They were Jewish followers of Jesus. But the good news of Jesus quickly spread outside the bounds of of ethnic Judaism and began to spread to what were called Gentiles in the Scripture or non-Jewish people. And they began to place their faith in Jesus and come into the fold of the community of Jesus followers... And this thing began to happen where Jewish followers of Jesus and Gentile or non-Jewish followers of Jesus began to mix. They began to commingle, And in our teaching text for today, we read the story of when the early church really had to figure out how to answer the question of just how much of the Jewish law applied to non-Jewish followers of Jesus. This is the question they are taking up in our passage for today. And how these things... uh, and, how these kind of, and the reason this was pressing, to be honest with you, is because the, the question before them was how do these different distinct groups of people with different beliefs, different religious practices, different orientations towards the world, how do they come in under one Lord? How do they, uh, how do they worship together in one church? How do they sing songs together? And probably most, uh, most pressing, how do they eat together? How do they eat together? because eating together was this practice that the early church had. They did it all the time, and yet there are these different people with these vastly different opinions about what they should or should not eat, and yet they're called together to eat, and so they have to figure some stuff out. They're worshiping under the same roofs, they're singing the same songs, and they're sitting at the same table, and so how are they going to do this? And this is what this passage today is all about. So, a little background on this story before we get into the text this morning. When we pick up the story in Acts chapter 15, we, ha- we find ourselves in the city of Antioch again. If you were with us last week, uh, we talked a lot about the city of Antioch and all that it represented for the early church. But some uh, Jewish Christians who are identified in this story as Pharisees are teaching the Gentiles or non-Jewish followers of Jesus that they need to follow the law, that they need to be circumcised. And the, so essentially what they're saying is that you need to become Jewish in order to follow the Jewish Messiah, Jesus, because Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And this sounds strange to us, but I really think in some sense, in, in, in its own cultural context, what these Pharisees, what the text calls Juda, what the scholars call Judaizers, kind of what they're asking of the Gentiles, makes sense in some sense if you put yourself in their shoes it makes sense because God revealed himself first to Abraham in the story of God's interaction with his people he chose him to start a family and he said that this family would bless the world right and he had given and he gave them the law he gave Abraham and Abraham's family the law and he gave them the law not as a set of kind of arbitrary rules to follow to make to see if they would be up to snuff Rather, uh, he gave them the law to set them apart, to make them distinct, to show the world what he was like, what God was like. This is why he gave them the law. And now this is really important to understand this morning, because if you miss it, you miss uh, a lot of what we're talking about. But sometimes we can paint an inaccurate picture of what the Hebrew law was and how it was understood. We're so far removed from from it. Many of us, uh, just grew up in a context where we, don't, uh, where we don't understand what the Hebrew law was or how it functioned. And we can kind of dramatize it. We can just say, oh, those are just a bunch of rules that were followed in order to make God happy. Like God in the Old Testament was capricious, that he just needed uh, to be placated by you eating certain things or not eating certain things or doing cert- this or not doing that, and then he would be happy with you. And this is the way we think of the law, but this is not the way in the Hebrew mind the law was um, was thought of. It's not the way it was considered. And I can show you this by the word in Hebrew that's used uh, to talk about the law. The, the word translated Hebrew law in the Old Testament is, we'll throw it up on the screen. We'll see if you, we'll see if you can say it with me. It's halacha. See, that's good. You're learning, you're learning Hebrew today. Now, this word halacha did not originally mean Jewish law. The actual literal translation of the word is uh, walking, or, or a way to walk, or the path. It comes from Deuteronomy 5.33 that says this, You shall walk in the way which the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may be well with you, that you may prolong your days in the land which you will possess. The law in the eyes of the Pharisees was not about earning God's favor. It was literally about a way to life. The law, this way of life, marked them out as God's people, and it allowed them to flourish, and they wanted to follow it as a way to walk, as a way to life, as a way to freedom, even. And so it's natural for one of these people who sees the law in this way to ask the question when these new Gentile Christians begin to come into the fold of the church, what changed? Why do we not need to follow this way any longer? Why do we not need to obey this law? And so some Jewish followers of Jesus begin following behind, and if you read Acts, you read the story. Paul and Barnabas are two early apostles of the church, and they begin going around the Mediterranean world, spreading the message of Jesus. And these Jewish followers of Jesus kind of follow behind them. Paul and Barnabas will go to a city, and they'll go to a city behind them. And they'll begin telling people that they need to be circumcised, that they need to take on this way of life, this law, this halakha, in order to really be a part of God's family. This is what they're saying. Now, they were not denying that God was doing a new thing in Jesus the Messiah. They believed in Jesus the Messiah. They, be, they believed that, um, that Jesus had uh, done something abundantly new, that, he, he was, that there was salvation available to all. And they did not believe that this message wasn't supposed to spread to the Gentiles. They simply believed that those Gentiles who come to Jesus need to become, in some sense, Jewish And you see, in the historical context of of ethnic Judaism, this makes sense. It's not a strange thing to think. It was not crazy. We look at it from our perspective and think it's really weird. It was just a bunch of of Jewish people lording rules and regulations over the heads of Gentiles. But from their perspective, that's not what they were doing. They were actually trying to teach these new converts to, to Jesus a way to life, a new way to walk. Now, were there, were there people within this context who were most certainly kind of lording it over people, were, were, were holding the rules and regulations over people's heads in, in, a, in an abusive and religious way? Yes, most certainly they, do, they were doing that. Jesus rebukes the Pharisees for doing that in the New Testament, and Paul rebukes the Pharisees for holding the law over people's heads in some of his letters as well. So that was happening. I'm not saying it wasn't. What I'm saying is that in general, that's not necessarily how the law was viewed. And it's kind of a novel idea for us, but I think it's an important one. It makes sense from their perspective that this was the right thing to do. And it is such a big issue that it needs to go before the leadership of the church. Because Paul and Barnabas, these two early apostles of the church, take issue with the fact that there are these Judaizers, that there are these Pharisees who are going around behind them, making people be Jewish in order to follow Jesus. They actually take issue with that. They don't believe that's what's supposed to be taking place. And so, uh, the, what the, the text says, they get in a quite an argument. And this argument leads them to actually go to Jerusalem, to the place where all the leadership of the early church was, and to have a conversation. Actually, to have a kind of summit of sorts about this very issue of how much of the Old Testament should Gentiles be expected to keep. This is the conversation they're having. Now, uh, Everyone in, this, everyone in this conversation knew that Jesus' death and resurrection had changed things. They, uh, they just needed to figure out how much his death and resurrection had changed things. Did Jesus' followers need to take up the yoke of the Jewish law upon themselves? Or was God doing a kind of new thing in, in Jesus, creating a new way to walk? Developing a new kind of irreligious path to God? And the council comes to the conclusion that Gentiles don't need to follow the Hebrew law. But the reason they give for why they don't need to do it, I think, is really interesting. The reason, uh, and the council comes to the conclusion that Gentiles don't need to follow the Hebrew law because of something that happened in Jesus' death and resurrection. Something fundamental, they argue, has, cha- has shifted and that now something else has taken the place of the law. And the thing that has taken the place of the, of the Hebrew law in the lives of Jesus' followers is that relationship, not religious observance, now marks God's people out as special. You, uh, you can see this in Acts 15, verses 7 through 10. If you have your Bibles, you can open it or it will be on the screen. So the Apostle Peter, the, one of the primary apostles of the church, stands up. And after they had been debating for a little while, the text says this, After much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. He said, Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then... Why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of of Gentiles a yoke that that we, nor our ancestors, have been able to bear? Now, what you need to understand here is that the law served as an identity marker. It It was a thing that marked God's people out. It was how people knew that Israel was God's special possession. It was how Israel... identified themselves. It was something that they used as a way of figuring out who they actually were. But Peter is saying in this passage that on the day of Pentecost, everything changed. Peter says that now it is God's personal presence with his people through the Holy Spirit that distinguishes his people from other types of people, that sets people apart, that makes them His people. There is no longer any need for a law, Peter says, because the way to walk is now written on the hearts of everyone who places their trust in Jesus. And there is no more need for religious performance because God's personal presence with his people through the Holy Spirit has taken the place of religious ritual as a signifier of who God's people are. And this is why the great 20th century theologian Karl Barth could say that the revelation of God is the abolition of religion. The revelation of God is the abolition of religion. I like that a lot. Because to place your faith in Jesus is to trust him to come in under his leadership and to set up a relationship with God. This is what Christians believe. You see, for Jesus, the heart of the matter is the human heart. It is not external conformity. It is rather the human heart. It is not about external religious practices. It is rather about experiencing and displaying the love of Jesus through the presence of God in our lives. And yes, Jesus most certainly introduces a way to walk, a way to be in the world. But he does this in a way that is so interesting and so different than what we expect. If you remember, Jesus says in Matthew, what Jesus says in Matthew 11, he says to his followers, take my yoke upon you. Remember that? And he says, learn from me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. When we read this, we don't often read it in the context of the Hebrew scriptures, but this is what he's referring to. Jesus has a way to walk. He has a kind of law but it is not a law that requires us to observe external rules and rituals and religious practices. Ra- but rather, Jesus sums up his new law, his new yoke, his new, uh, his new teaching during the Last Supper. During the final few hours he had with his disciples before he was taken into custody and, and, uh, and led to the cross. He's having this last meal with, this, with his disciples in John 13. And in John 13, verse 34, he's talking to his disciples that he's not going to be with them much longer and that everything's going to change. And he says this really interesting thing. He says, a new commandment I give to you. A new commandment, huh? That you love one another. Even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. A new commandment? What are you talking about? The commandments are, were written on stone tablets, right? The law was finished, and Jesus is giving a new commandment? This is very strange. What Jesus is doing here is reorienting the law, the halakha, around himself and what he is about to do. And the New Testament writers echo this sentiment. The New, Test- new Testament writers pick up on this same idea. In Galatians 6, the Apostle Paul is writing to the church, and he says this, Carry each other's burdens, and in this way, you fulfill the law of Christ. Strange, right? Sounds a lot like love one another, doesn't it? And in the book of James, in James chapter 1, James says to to his audience, Religion that God our Father accepts is pure and faultless is this, To look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. That's religion? That's religious practice? Implying that for those who follow Jesus, who have put their trust in him and have been filled with the Spirit, the only religion that matters is the law of love. Strange, isn't it? There are no more hoops to jump through. There is no more religious performance required. The pastor, a, guy, a pastor I like, a guy named Bruxy Cavey puts it this way. He says, the, the Jesus of the Bible lives by a simple philosophy. If love guides our hearts, rules become redundant. Love embraced as a guiding orientation of others' centeredness will always lead us to do the right thing. And so because of what Jesus did on the cross and the reorientation of the law around him, the law is transformed. It's made different. Jesus has fulfilled the law. It has been summed up in him. And now, through Christ, we can stand right before God without a need for rules and regulations, without a need for a buffer between us and God. It is pure relationship. And so, back to the beginning of the message. What do we do with all the Old Testament scriptures that seem to not apply to us today? Well, this is a, it's a difficult question, <laughs> honestly. And it's, it's something that uh, biblical scholars and people who think about these things a lot uh, debate a little bit. of How exactly to interpret those passages about what applies to us and what doesn't. It's not as cut and dry as you would think. The Bible I'm sorry to say this to you. The Bible is not always easy. <laughs> I apologize, but there is a, a kind of uh, interpretive clue I think that helps us read these passages and read the Old Testament in a way that helps us understand how to read it with through uh, read it well, and that is to read it through the lens of Jesus. If Jesus has reoriented the law, if he has reinterpreted it around himself, if he has fulfilled it completely, then he is the kind of lens through which we should read the Bible. And he's the lens through which we should read the Old Testament. Jesus says at one point, if if you've read the Old Testament, you've read about me. He actually says these types of things in the New Testament. Uh, The pastor, John Piper, says it this way, Wherever you look in Scripture, look to Jesus. Let every passage tell you something of his Father and his Spirit, and thus himself. Make it your aim in all your use of the Scriptures to see and savor more of Christ. Be on a treasure hunt to satisfy your soul more and more in him. In this way, the Spirit of Christ will be at work to transform you into his image. The aim of the law will be fulfilled more and more in your life and you will magnify christ in your life until he comes to complete the work he has begun this is what it means to read the scriptures in the light of christ to reorient our lives around the person of jesus to find our religion in a relationship with jesus and so what does this mean for us this morning it means you and i don't have to do anything there is uh, there is no cleanup process that needs to take place before we step into relationship with Jesus. We don't have to have our lives sorted away, organized, and kind of put in a drawer beca- before we come to Jesus. There is no religious ritual or practice that you need to carry out in order to be acceptable to God. Rather, it is, G- it is the love of God in the person of Jesus given to us that makes us clean and holy And yes, there is a way to walk. We walk in the way of Jesus. But we do that by first knowing Jesus and then loving him and embodying that love out into the world. This is what it means to follow Jesus. This is what it means to take his yoke, his law, his way upon us. You know, when I was studying for this message, what, what struck me is that Throughout all of the scriptures, from the Old Testament all the way through the New Testament, the thing that, uh, is the, that belief is described as being a way, a way of walking, a way of living, a way of doing life. And Jesus reorients that around himself, around, around the way in which he embodies self-sacrificial love. And in, that, and in that passage where he, where he gives that law of love to his disciples, right before that, he gives them uh, a practice. And some might say that he gives them a religious practice that needs to be carried out. But I think he's just giving them a, a, a helpful exercise of sorts to help remind them of what the way of Jesus looks like. And the practice he gives them is the practice of communion, the thing we're about to come to today. And what he says as he, when he gives them communion is that you do this in remembrance of him. As a means of remembering Christ's self-sacrificial love. Of centering our lives, our hopes, our fears in the self-sacrificial love of Christ. That we might be self-sacrificial in that same way. And w- w- he even says this is a new covenant. Covenant a new promise, a new law in my love that should reorient your lives. And it's centered around the sacrifice of Jesus. And Christians, for thousands of years, when they have come to the table, have reaffirmed the reality that we build our lives, that the yoke, that the way that we walk, is centered in the love and grace of Jesus. And when we come to the table together as a community, we come as a sign, as a symbol, as a practice that helps us remember that we build our lives around this way, the way of self-sacrificial love, that we don't build our lives around religious rules or rituals, that we, there is nothing we need to do practically to have God love us any more or any less. But rather, we build our lives around the one who first loved us. This is what it means to be a follower of Jesus in the world. And this is what it means to be the church. And so this morning, we're going to receive communion together as, as a way of reminding ourselves again of who God is and what he is actually like, that God looks like Jesus on the cross, that, that uh that the way that God longs for us to live is in love towards him and towards others. Paul, when he is teaching the Corinthian church about this supper, says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This is the cup in the new covenant of my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Paul goes on to say this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment upon himself. Now there's some confusion about what it is that Paul is actually saying there. Sometimes we think that that passage says that if I have sin in my life, I shouldn't receive, uh, come to the table, that I shouldn't receive communion. That's not what that's saying. When Paul says if in, if there is uh, is that if there is sin against the body of Christ, what he's saying is, are you getting along? Are you observing this new covenant? To love one another, right? He's saying to the church, uh, remember the law. Remember the law that Christ gave to us. He said to, to love one another. And if, if you come to the table of communion and you, there's, some, there's some issue in your, in your own heart about your ability to love people, get that sorted. Because this table is all about reorienting our lives around the self-sacrificial love of Christ. And it is meant to be a kind of reminder to us of who God is and how we are to live and the way we are to follow. And so today, as we come to the table, i just like to say that at Grace Community, we, pra- community we practice an open communion, which means that if you're, uh, if you're not a member of this church, you're free to receive communion with us. All we ask is that you trust Jesus with your life. And this morning, uh, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And as we prepare our hearts to, rec- to come to the table and receive communion, my prayer for you this morning is that you would learn to orient your life around the goodness and the love of God. That if there is any, any, anything in your heart, any, any uh, unforgiveness that you're bearing towards someone in your life, that you would ask Jesus to come into that, that you, would allow, that you would allow him to transform it and change it, that you could step in under his easy yoke, his way of love. All right? All right, let's pray. Father, we love you, and we thank you, Lord, for gathering us together here today. We ask that as we come to the table this morning, that your, uh, that your spirit would remind us, God, of how much you love us, of the great sacrifice you've made on our behalf, and the way in which you want us to follow in that same way, that pattern of love. Jesus, would you make us a loving and grace-filled community of Jesus' followers? Would you help us to see that the way of Jesus is a way of love? And, that, and would you help us to find ways to embrace that this week? We pray it all in the name of Jesus. Amen, and amen, and amen. So uh, in just a moment, the table will be open. You'll be free to come up and receive the elements. You can either take them back to your seat or you can receive right at the table uh, as you come up. Uh, the table is open, and we'll